Coming up. I've sat through a six-week construction defect trial, and jurors tend to get a little sleepy when they're faced with something like that. But this was one that really was uh, like a horror movie come to life. For Vault Studios, I'm Reed Redmond. You're listening to The Daily Crime. In the spring of 2015, detectives in Jacksonville, Florida, showed up at the home of a man named Russell Tillis to arrest him on misdemeanor warrants. Police came to his Southside home to arrest him for two active warrants, violating a protective order and making threats. But it quickly became clear that this wasn't going to be a typical misdemeanor arrest. Police say Tillis, armed with a knife in each hand, led them on a chase through his yard, booby-trapped with razor blades and nails. Ann Schindler with First Coast News in Jacksonville, Florida. Thanks for joining us once again. I guess there is no shortage of news on America's First Coast. Yeah, it does seem to be a little bit of a crazy ride lately. Thanks, Reed. And you've been covering a trial that's become known as the House of Horrors trial. And unfortunately, that's a fitting name for the crimes at the center of it. And given where this would end up, it's almost hard to believe that it started with detectives going to a home in Jacksonville to serve a warrant on misdemeanor charges. Tell me what happened. Well, this was a a house of horrors named by the neighbors, in fact, because the tenant there was such a nightmare for them to deal with. He was a menace, according to neighbors, a source of threats, harassment, and obscene signs. It was very nice and quiet until he came to the neighborhood. We've lived four years. I mean, he was a uh, threatening. He um, stalked them. You know, they described in testimony not feeling comfortable showering at night. They they were really um, plagued by his presence. And he was always doing things in the neighborhood that were very strange, you know, digging holes and pressure washing everything and kind of being out and about in the wee hours of the night. And there was this series of women who uh, escaped to neighbors' homes or to um, elsewhere after screaming and being trapped in his home. I mean, there was report after report of these neighbors calling police to complain about him. And so when they were serving this warrant, the officers saw him, they spotted him, he kind of dashed away, and they entered his property, and they found that it was completely booby-trapped with razor blades in the bushes and on the trees and along the fence line and spike boards on the ground, one of which, you know, an officer stepped on and it penetrated his foot. So it was a, from the start, it was not just your ordinary serving of a warrant or in any way an ordinary house. Were they able to arrest him that day or was it prevented by all these strange booby traps? So they did eventually arrest him. I don't, know that it was that day. I think that it was soon thereafter. And so he was in jail awaiting um, trial on this assault and battery charge on an officer um, when he was arrested, ultimately implicated in this murder case. This case has been playing out for years now. And just to put things into perspective, Russell Tillis was initially arrested in 2015 And it's at some point after that, another inmate contacts police with some information. What does he have to say? So this inmate contacts police and says that he basically got a, he has a confession that a fellow inmate, Russell Tillis, had told him about a number of things that he'd done that were illegal and offered to wear 
a wire. Um, so he did. And in this confession, which was actually two confessions, Russell Tillis speaks of just a variety of really awful things, you know, keeping women captives, then sexually assaulting them and making them sexually available to people that he knew for money, um, in some cases, torturing and killing them. Um, and in at least this one case, then dismembering the body of uh, Joni Gunter. He doesn't name her, but the particulars end up matching up and uh, burying her in his backyard. Um, he said he did it with his brother, who interestingly has not faced any charges in this case. His name is Claude Tillis. But prosecutors believe Claude Tillis was involved, that somehow, according to this wire, he had come over to have sex with one of these women. She'd recognized him, and he'd insisted that Russell Tillis kill her. And so he did, he said. And then the two of them cut her up with a sawzall in his garage and uh, buried her in several holes in the backyard. And when police went out there on that tip, they found, you know, exactly that the body where it was described in these number of burial holes. In February of 2016, excavators were photographed uncovering shallow graves. Severed remains buried in multiple locations would later be identified as belonging to Joni Lynn Gunter. After her decomposed bones and hair were collected as evidence, interrogators confronted Tillis about the discovery. He was already in jail for resisting arrest and assaulting an officer months earlier during that arrest in his yard. You're facing your house, right? On the right side, you walk through the fence. Found the victim right here. After several minutes and no response, Tillis asks for an attorney. I would like an attorney present. Okay. All right, let's do that. What do we know about the victim, this 30-year-old woman named Joni Gunter? Were people out there looking for her, or have we learned much else about who she was? So she was estranged from her family, and like all of these other alleged victims were, you know, she was taking drugs at the time. The Her sister did testify about her as a child, and also when she went missing. You know, she put up a Facebook post asking after her. But because of the lifestyle that Joni Gunter was living, it was very transient. She was not, you know, keeping in touch, let's say, with her family. She actually has a son that is being raised by her grandmother, by his great-grandmother. And um, she also read a victim impact statement at the trial. That child, I think, is 12 now. Um, and her line in her testimony was that sometimes people ask about his mom and, and he says he calls his grandma mom because his mom was murdered. We also heard at trial from a, a number of other people who claimed they were victimized by Russell Tillis. One of them was a woman whose car broke down on I-75. This was back in the 80s and he picked her up. He drove her to a construction lot where apparently he'd been doing some work. This was in Hillsborough County in Tampa and uh, tried to rape her. And she was rescued by a couple of other people on that site who just happened to, to come by. Um, and he did get arrested and serve some prison time for that. But she was one of, you know, a number of women with the same story. These other women who testified were very addicted to various drugs. 
and had just terrifying encounters with Tillis. Um, they testified to, um, one woman testified that she awoke chained to his bed, being raped and uh, punched in the face. And then he kind of dragged her around the yard and um, she managed to escape. But the stories were very similar in terms of, you know, this forced captivity and, and sexual abuse. And you mentioned that they had this other inmate wear a wire. So he's actually recording this entire confession. So investigators at this point, they don't just have this other inmate saying, hey, Tillis told me he did this, this, and this. They have Tillis on a microphone or on, on tape saying all those things, right? Right. One complicating thing at the trial, to read is that he says, and it turned out to be the case, that he had planned this with this inmate that he was going to do a confession, that he was going to wear a wire, and they both knew he was wearing the wire. It's never really been clear what his aim was. He said in court when he testified that he was aiming for the death penalty, and he was trying to come up with the worst story he could possibly think of, but it was all made up. But of course, so many of the particulars were actually spot on, that it's it was just a weird level of you know, lack of clarity, I guess, really, as to what that was all about. But there was this confession, and it was a big part of the trial. What crimes was Russell Tillis actually charged with? He was charged primarily with this first-degree murder charge, but he was also charged with uh, sex trafficking, kidnapping, and the abuse of a dead human body. And in the end, he was convicted of three of the four. The jury found that he could not be convicted of the sex trafficking just because there wasn't a lot of evidence on that charge. They actually came in with a question at one point saying, you know, what if we believe uh, with, with great confidence that he's guilty of this thing, but we don't see any evidence? And the judge had to kind of send them back to deliberate. So they even sort of showed their hand that they believed that that probably was true, but they didn't find evidence to necessarily support it. And one interesting detail in all this from your reporting, of course, you were at the trial, is just like every trial that's going on right now, the jury members are all wearing masks, which I assume makes it kind of difficult to try to read what they're thinking as they're hearing different pieces of testimony. But in this case, the pieces of testimony were, as you reported, objectively disturbing I guess, given all of that, what was it like keeping an eye on the jury throughout this trial? Well, they were wrapped. I mean, I've been to a number of trials, and I've sat through a six-week construction defect trial, and jurors tend to get a little sleepy when they're faced with something like that. But this was one that really was uh, like a horror movie come to life. Every bit of what they heard was sort of worse than what they, you know, the previous, and they had the defendant testify in this case, which was very strange, but also pretty compelling. I mean, obviously it is incredibly hard to, um, appreciate how difficult it is for people who just kind of walk in off the street to hear what these jurors had to hear and also have to make this life and death decision after they convicted him. You know they are dealing with a lot of really a lot of really difficult facts, but they're also then you know having to make really consequential decisions, and their lives will never be the same. I mean, this really is one of those things where you're called to jury duty. You don't know what it is that you're going to see or encounter, and you can really step into something that is profoundly 
life-changing and, you know, hear things that you can't unhear and see things you can't unsee and be asked to make decisions that are, will stay with you forever. The trial wrapped up then in April of this year. And as you mentioned, he was convicted on all of the charges except that human trafficking charge. What can you tell me about Tillis's sentencing at this point? So he will come back for a formal sentencing. And what is left to be decided is primarily whether he'll be designated a habitual offender. It seems likely that would happen. That would essentially double the penalties in the crimes that can be doubled. Obviously, there's no greater penalty than, well, there's death. He did not get death, but a life sentence cannot be doubled. It is um, the lesser sentences that, that could be increased, but, you know, he will undoubtedly spend the rest of his life in prison. I don't think that there's anything that the judge would do to deviate. Certainly, his demeanor throughout this trial was uh, not what I would call especially favorable to the defense. It really was, you know, very, I think, deferential to, you know, the, the state and its priorities. So I would fully expect that, that that will be the sentence that's handed down. You know, the whole uh, approach that this defense team used was focused on avoiding the death penalty. And it really is this new strategy that defense attorneys use in capital cases that's called the Colorado method. And it's this really determined way of picking jurors that are going to be open to the possibility of not putting someone to death, no matter how bad and how awful the crime is, if they convict, that they'll at least allow for the possibility that this person would not automatically require the death penalty in their view. And they use that, the voir dire, as an opportunity to educate the jurors about their choice, their autonomy, really, their ability to express their individual wish as a juror, you know, unlike in the conviction state or the guilt phase where they have to sort of deliberate and agree and come to this joint resolution when they're in the, when they're in the penalty phase, it really is, you know, every man for himself. And so this defense team said, you know, you can come back with a verdict of mercy. You do not have to fall in line with your fellow jurors. And she made each of them pledge not to bully and not be bullied during deliberations, that they would respect their other jurors if they did not have the same perspective or the same verdict as they did. And in this case, they came back with three jurors out of 12 that voted for mercy. And that is pretty extraordinary because this is one of those bad facts cases. I mean, there is not a lot of, you know, good <laughs> um, testimony that was, was brought forward. So it, it was, it was, Pretty interesting to see that method put to use so effectively in this case. Ann Schindler with First Coast News in Jacksonville. Thanks for bringing us this story. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks as always for tuning in to another episode of The Daily Crime. We're here with a new episode five days a week, Monday through Friday. So make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you're listening to it right now. And if you're looking for more true crime, head over to vaultstudios.com for a full list of our shows. That'll do it for this one. Until next time, for Volt Studios, I'm Reed Redmond. Redmond.